Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where spring has finally sprung. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, 1680 AM, Ada Grand Rapids, WPRR, or streaming live at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow Doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean. Yellow. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Aloha. We're going to start off with a news item this week. This coming to us from CNN.com, a Pew Research Center finding. Survey shows that support for terror suspect torture differs among the faithful. And in short, what the findings of this, the survey from the Pew Research Center is that Christians are more in favor of torture or those acts tantamount to torture, like waterboarding, than are non-Christians. Yeah, it looks like they gave them uh, the, the Pew Forum, which we talked about earlier with their uh, documentation of the rise of the unaffiliated, uh, is releasing more statistics from their uh, more specific questions of their sample. But this one was on a variety of social issues, and the one that seemed to have caught the media's eye was the, uh, can the use of torture against suspected terrorists ever be justified? And so they gave people a range of, you know, often justified, sometimes justified, to never. And uh, lo and behold, which is no probably no surprise to... Um, our listeners or us, but the white evangelical Protestant group had the highest support. I think they had uh, 62% either said often justified or sometimes at least. Uh, That was the highest one. The white non-Hispanic Catholics were slightly less at uh, about 50%. And then the mainline Protestants were about 46%. And then Mm. rock bottom, the unaffiliated, which probably includes a lot of people similar to us, although that's a mixed group. That was at right. uh, only 40%. I guess I say only 40, but... I was going to say, that's still a pretty good percentage. Yes. Wow. 15% it could be often justified. But that's... Uh, but uh, yeah, the media kind of uh, seemed to... That seemed to strike them as funny that Christ, that Christians, especially the evangelicals, would be more supportive of torture, which I guess somebody has to explain to me why that's a surprise. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it echoes back to studies we've talked about in the past, too, um, experimental research about... Um, about retaliation and mm-hmm. how that's much higher among Christians than it is among non-Christians. Yeah, too. a lot of stuff we talked about on the last episode about um, morality and, mm-hmm. and perceived morality uh, versus you know actu- actual behavior. I guess this was self-report data. Well, that you could make an argument that since it's self-report data, the probably the actual you know if you were to have a window into their soul might have been even a greater discrepancy because of someone's willingness to say yes, torture is justified in an overt sort of way. Yeah, but, that would be something you you would think if you were saving face, you wouldn't want to self-report true. that you support true. torture. Yeah, they also found that the, the church attendance thing, which obviously correlates with the denomination, but those people who attend at least weekly had higher support for torture than those who seldom or or never go. But yeah, I mean, you know, clearly there's there's third variables involved here, like the fact right. that most people who are white evangelical Protestants are conservative or, 
you know, Republican or right wing uh, yeah. types, and the unaffiliated are probably less likely to be that. Um, so that you know, that again, that wasn't any surprise to me because I deal with these sorts of demographic things all the time, where you find that conservative issues correlate with religiosity, and if support for torture was like, a, as we know, a Republican or conservative thing, mm-hmm. why would that be surprising to anybody? It only strikes people as weird, I think, because of the doctrine. Like, well. Christians should be more lovey and gooey. Love and thy neighbor and all of that. As, as we talked about last week, the, the concept of Christian love also includes a God who is willing to send people to hell. I mean, there's you can't get better as far as torture goes than hell. That is the supreme act of supernatural torture lasting mm-hmm. for an eternity. So yeah, it's, it's not like it's a foreign concept. It, yeah. I look at the comments on the blogs of some of this stuff, and that was one of the things that people said for their explanation was, is it any surprise you have a religion whose prime symbol is an instrument of torture that they might be mm-hmm. more or, – or if you have an attitude that there's like this world is just a pregame show and that the big stuff is after you die, you'll, you know, you've suffered, way to go, you'll go to heaven now, that maybe they care less about that sort of thing. Right, and, and, and the Mother Teresa approach to suffering where all suffering is good because it makes you more Christ-like and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's a lot of factors at play here. I don't think we can say that Christianity makes people more willing to torture. Um, that's certainly not not the message to come away with here. But the the correlation between conservative political values um, and Christianity is is an important connection here. And I think that's um, now whether they're conservative because they are evangelicals or they're evangelicals because they're conservative. You know, it's. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can you can make a, a good argument that that's something that's unique to maybe this particular time and place where right. to, those two things are synonymous. Like a hundred years ago, uh, you know, Christianity was associated with more like liberal social movements, like temperance right. and support for the poor and things, and it was seen as being a, Jesus was kind of depicted as being more of a girly, effeminate type of thing. Right. Because if you've ever made, uh, read uh, American Gospel by is it Stephen Prothero? He writes a lot of the religion, but he goes through the different. Jesus is with different times, and you know, we assume mm. that now Jesus is this kind of muscular, you know, ass-kicking, blue-collar He's type ripped. guy. Uh, the rapture Jesus, rather than what he used to be maybe 150 years ago. If you, if you even look at pictures of him, he was much more, like, effeminate and bless this and bless uh, that. Sandal-wearing hippie type. And if you wanted to be a conservative Christian or a conservative religious type, you emphasize Old Testament God. Right, you didn't right. care about Jesus. Right. Or if you go 100 years before that, you know, torture of witches and stuff, witches couldn't actually feel pain. Uh, was yes. the idea? They, it's just they an just, illusion. Yeah, they they're just you know um, showing the outward signs of pain, and so you know it's not really torture if they're a witch. So, well, I I, I have actually never heard that before, but that's a brilliant brilliant oh, yeah, tactic yeah. to take. Yeah. Wow, yeah. Descartes, I, I didn't know that. Descartes so did the same thing with animals. Screaming. Did, yes. did he really? Yeah. The dog seems to object to being burnt without coals. It's a mechanism. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it's just the demon inside. Response. All right, then. Oh, speaking It's of, amazing how much it looks like it's in pain. <laughs> this dog is a wonderful actor. Nearly <laughs> uh, the effect of Satan. Speaking of being burned with pointy things. Yes, we had some people asking about our discussion of the Craig Bradley debate last week. First of all, we had a listener named Luke who brought up to us that there is actually audio of the debate. We commented. uh, Mm -hmm. I said that I'd looked for audio or video and I couldn't find any. Well, apparently I didn't look very hard. And he gave us the website commonsenseatheism.com has 400 plus atheism versus theism debates including audio of the Bradley-Craig debate. So you can get that there. And thank you very much for a listener bringing that to our attention. 
Um, the other thing people brought up was, if you recall from the last episode, Bradley's case that hell and a loving God are incompatible, he ultimately staked that on heaven, heaven existing as a possible world where people do have free will and yet use that free will to obey God. And we mentioned that Craig said at first that heaven wasn't a possible world or that he said then he qualified that by saying it is a possible world, but God is unable to actualize it. A reader on the blog, Torgo, said, I recently listened to the Craig Bradley debate and was glad to hear you guys discussing it. I thought you misrepresented one of Craig's points, though. When Bradley raised the issue of heaven, Craig's response that it's possible that God could not have feasibly created a perfectly good heaven without first having creatures live through a world like ours. And that is true. We didn't actually go into what the content of Craig's objection was for time purposes. We didn't want to cover every complete aspect and just brush that aside. But some people were interested in the response. So Mm -hmm. real quick, Craig's position again was that for heaven, a place where creatures can exist with free will and choose to obey God, uh, that can't exist without our world first existing, some sort of previous world where people do have to make a positive decision to follow God or not, a flawed world like ours. In fact, Craig doesn't say that has to be the case, he says, but it's possible that that might be a precondition on hell. And as our listener Torgo uh, and some others pointed out, doesn't this switch the burden of proof on Craig? Doesn't this make Craig Mm -hmm. now, Craig is the one who has to prove that a fallen sinful world is a necessary condition for beings to be able to live obediently in in heaven. What do you guys think about that? It seems to me that Craig has a very limited omnipotent God, a God who has to do all of this running around and creating another world where people suffer first before he can have heaven. That doesn't make sense. An omnipotent God can do whatever he or she or it wants. I think, this this yeah. trial by fire beforehand does not make sense. I, I have a question. Is he suggesting that, uh, that all suffering is it's to somehow purge us and prepare us for a— What he's saying is that um, if God just created heaven— then the beings there could possibly rebel or because they wouldn't obey appreciate them. it because they hadn't. So been the experience through. of going through a, a, a world with suffering and needing to deliberately choose Christ's salvation mm. is a necessary precondition for that world heaven to exist. One of the things I was thinking about was: Does this match the biblical idea of hell? Rather, heaven. I'm sorry, the biblical I- idea of heaven. Aren't there hosts and angelic beings and all mm-hmm. sorts of other creatures right. that uh, that do exist in heaven that presumably didn't live a previous life on some earth earth like world? They were already there, weren't they? Right. right. So where did Lucifer come from? See, now I have to I have to say because I was I was raised Christian reformed and they don't get into any of that stuff cherubim seraphim um, all of that that's completely outside of my can. I I don't know if that's more. Catholic or what? So I. Well, it's in the Bible. It's in. It is in the Bible. They're but Elohim's. There's, well, again, it's sketchy trying to fit out what what the actual cosmic history uh, right. of these worlds because it's are, coming from myths talked, that were cobbled yeah, together. And, yeah, as we've talked about previously. But still, 
um, if if it, what matters is that Craig believes this, right? And uh, and presumably, I, I would think Craig isn't just going to dismiss those passages. But it doesn't matter if we can imagine any sort of possible world. If we can imagine some sort of way that God could get around this problem, and the Bible does, because it imagines these angels. Bradley gives us one scenario where this would work. Um, God only creates those individuals that he has foreknowledge will actually follow his will. That's it within the realm of possibility. So mm-hmm. unless Craig can somehow prove that God couldn't do that, then the critique stands and Craig can't support his position. Mm-hmm. A loving God must contradict with the idea of hell. If you want to get into the particulars of them going back and forth, again, we refer you to that website, Common Sense Atheism, or you can find the link on our last episode, episode 39, uh, the link to the transcript of the debate and see them hammering out the individual details. Let's take a look at a couple of emails we've gotten. Um, One of the emails is from a listener named Richa. Richa writes, I recently had a conversation with my roommate who is a practicing Roman Catholic about how she chooses to believe certain things her religion says and not other things. I became very frustrated when the conversation – with the conversation when her response to all of my probing questions was the same. And she gives an example. The Bible to her was written by people, so it's not the word-for-word word, word of God. So the Bible isn't perfect, she says. It's just people trying to make sense of God. Today, people's interpretations of the Bible are also just reading the book, trying to make sense of what God said. So some people's interpretation could be wrong. Yes, she says. Hmm. But what about the Pope? She believes in gay marriage, in contraception, but all of these the Pope is against. She says that the Pope has just interpreted the Bible wrong? But isn't the Pope somehow special? And she goes on, uh, every time I point out a logical fallacy, her response is that the person is interpreting it wrong. Mm Mm-hmm. Which means the only person who's interpreting right is her roommate. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she wonders how do you how would we respond to this this defense, the uh the interpretation is wrong argument. I mean it's a, it's yeah, it's a, it's an unfalsifiable type technique you use to it's kind of like, you know, intellectual Kevlar that that uh you used to render your views unfalsifiable. If it's something that seems nasty, you say, well, they interpret it wrong. Or right. it's, just, it's a human misunderstanding of, of God's actual plan. And then if it's something you like, you say, see, it's in the Bible. It's a perfect plan. And so, therefore, you render any possible objection. There's no, no objection that could be made because if something was seems unpleasant, you just say it's bad interpretation. Right. And, and I, would, I, I guess the only thing you could do, and this is probably an argument that you're never going to win, but point out to your roommate that that she is then giving herself the sole authority to interpret the Bible correctly because everyone else is interpreting it wrong. Well, why does she know that they're interpreting it wrong? Well, because it's because her interpretation says that it's wrong. Um, if she objects to that and says that, no, that's, that's not what she's doing, mm-hmm. you can test that pretty easily. Ask her for a criteria. What are the criteria that you use to distinguish between what is a legitimate saying of God in the Bible mm-hmm. and what is just a something that human authors inserted in? How do you distinguish between those two? How do you distinguish between a legitimate interpretation that the Pope makes of something right. and an illegitimate one 
Um, so if he's wrong about gay marriage and contraception, then what's your criteria for saying that he's why? right about anything? I mean, what? Right. If she can't offer a criteria, then you've shown that your roommate's judgments here are, are arbitrary. It's just dictated by what she wants to believe. And arbitrary opinions like that, we don't need to treat those very seriously. It's often good to point out when people do that with other religions too rather than one's own. So if you have the Quran that says nasty things, you you know, then the, then the Islamic moderates will say, oh, it doesn't mean that. Mm-hmm. Islam is a religion of peace and it doesn't really say you know so we are often better at pointing that out in other people's religions first than we do with ours that, that they're picking and choosing the ones that yeah. just pass their own sniff test right and there is such a thing as hermeneutics there are there are theories that you apply to interpreting these things but what Reach is talking about here is something that a lot of us experienced and it's it's not really any sort of hermeneutic it's not any sort of interpretational Mm-mm. stance it's it's really just maneuvering it's really the most frustrating kind of conversation you can have, though, because there is no uh, there is no positive outcome here. You're going, just going to end up arguing with each other. Yeah, if somebody's not going to support their opinion with reasons and evidence, they're basically just giving you a report on their own psychology. Right. Oh, that's interesting. If you want to persuade me, then give me reason and right. evidence. And I'm all for for having these discussions and arguments, just don't go into it thinking that you're going to change anything. It's going to be frustrating and it's going to drive you both crazy and uh, have fun with that. If she's your roommate, you have to get along first with the roommate. Otherwise, clothing gets stolen, uh, food is doctored, <laughs> right. uh, rent is, is you know, reneged on. So unfortunately, we can't offer a real satisfactory uh, response to that. Sorry. We have another email from Tony. Tony just met Lee Strobel. Lee's, Yay, Tony. Yeah. Uh, Lee Strobel is a Christian apologist that I'm sure many people are familiar with out there, uh, most famous for the case for Christ. And uh, I, I would add that I think Lee Strobel is one of the uh, weaker uh, apologists out there. He he tends to be much more for a popular audience. but Even Craig is better, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Tony met Lee Strobel uh, – when he was speaking at a church and uh, kind of – it sounds like it was kind of an open house. People were just mm-hmm. invited to ask questions and share things and she shares a very long story about uh, all the different things that went on and, and it's it's really interesting. But yeah. uh, we're only going to read a few quick portions here. But one thing I thought that was, was great is Tony asked Lee Strobel directly. Uh, she said, you're not a Catholic, right? Uh, reading from the email. He confirmed that he was a Protestant, and I proceeded to ask if he thinks Catholic miracles are believable. Mm-hmm. He said mostly no. Then I proceeded to ask how he could think that 500 eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus could be reliable and compelling but not believe in Catholic miracles. And I told him about the miracle of the son, the miracle of the three Fatima children, mm-hmm. uh, which is vastly more recent and had not just 500 eyewitnesses, but reported 100,000 who saw the sun dance and change colors. And uh, Lee Strobel's response, according to the email, was that those people saw a hallucination of the sun. They couldn't have hallucinated a human being. Yeah, because that's never happened. That's so much easier is, you know, for the the sun to be a hallucination. But humans are are pretty concrete. Is Is that taken from the Corinthians thing, the 500 number? Is that what Paul refers to as, and then he appeared to 500 or more people? Didn't we talk about that in a previous episode? That, um, that's the number that's trundled off. I was from, wondering about that, too. That that seemed like a, a lot of 
witnesses, or at least first he appeared to the women at the, and then to P, to Cephas or Peter, and then he appeared to the five hundred. That was, I think, that's yeah. from Corinthians, where mm-hmm. he's giving uh, right. justification for why they should believe. And uh, finally, he appeared to me, and we know the way that he he appeared, appeared to Paul, to was, Paul just, was in a in, in a, a vision. vision. Yeah. So, so technically, then then. If somebody uses appear in that sense, the 500 appearances might have been just they had a vision of Jesus or right. a common. So you could attack this. that notion in, in many ways that we have in the past, uh, looking at the texts of the resurrection. Their accounts are inconsistent. It shows evolution over time. It's not entirely clear that people who were convinced of a re- resurrection saw a bodily Jesus and mm-hmm. not just encountered visions. Those are all ways to counter it. I do like a lot what Tony is doing, though, because what, what Tony is doing yeah. is just showing, look, by your criteria, your standards of evidence for trusting this as a miracle, then there are other miracles that meet that standard of evidence or exceed it mm-hmm. that you are not going to acknowledge. And what she's doing is she's just putting them on the line, you know, saying, look, if you accept this in one area, then shouldn't you have to accept this in others? Really what we should if, – if the apologists are being consistent is we should be able to remove all names, all proper pronouns of who are involved and just give this scenario. Yeah. OK, look, 500 people 2,000 years ago saw some guy who was executed alive three days later and believed he resurrected. Is Would that be enough for you to believe that that person indeed resurrected? Mm-hmm. If they're not going to accept that as an argument in, in that level of abstraction, then there's no reason to accept. You must believe Apollonius of Tyana. That's yeah. right. That's right. I'd like to try to start articulating more critiques of that kind. For example, uh, another argument that they use connected to the resurrection is um, wouldn't it have had to have happened because – why would followers of Jesus, why would his disciples die? Why would they be martyred for something for, that for they know for a fact mm-hmm. was a lie? And uh, if you use that as a criteria, I was I was just thinking off the top of my head the other day, well, wait a second, Joseph Smith, didn't mm-hmm. Joseph Smith, uh, he was he was executed in the end, right? right. Wasn't he, he, he they was shot? The, or? They stormed the jail that he was holding uh, and then him and his... Some of those close yeah. people were shot. And yeah. he was a fraud, and he knew he and, was a fraud. And that wasn't a surprise. Right. He, they were persecuted back in Illinois. That's why, mm-hmm. they, that's why they migrated. I mean, there's a clear example of somebody who clearly knew that he was deceiving people. Um, at least he did at the beginning. By the end, he may have, have convinced himself that, that his story a, was true. That's a far more interesting explanation is that a lot of people that start yeah. out as con artists actually end up believing their own stuff because it's more believable oh, sure. that way. And if you say something and then things come true, you might be like, well, maybe I am. Right. You know, this, there's, there's kind of a gray area between an outright lie and something that is a total belief where you could actually mm. make yourself – yeah, all right. And I'm not suggesting the original apostles were con artists, but I think they may have been dopes. The point is the point is if the apologists are going to expect us to accept that argument, right. then they can't turn to a case like Joseph Smith and say, well, it doesn't work there. David Koresh. If, if they're going to apply the same standards to themselves that they apply to others, then wouldn't they have to bite the bullet and say, yes, I think Joseph Smith is a prophet or revealed a revelation from God? Right. Or, or even genuine – like let's say Paul had a vision of Jesus. Let's say he genuinely believed it and he was martyred because of it. That doesn't make it so. Somebody right. could yeah. genuinely believe something that's still a fantasy. Right. 
I, I think uh, Tony's email, which which was a great read, by the way, um, she really did a fantastic job dealing with uh, with Lee Strobel. I, I was really impressed. In fact, she touched on uh, sounds like some of the things that we're going to get into on today's episode. I was also happy to see that Tony brought up one of the arguments that we've used before on the podcast to Lee Strobel to see how he could answer it. You may remember back from what was it, the Bizarro World episode? Oh well, that's, and that's way back. Yeah, and I, th- I think we've talked about it since. It's one of our best. Talking about God's nature as a holy being, we made the case that that's not really an intelligible attribute of God. That it makes no sense to say there's no content when you're saying that God is moral, holy, or righteous. Mm-hmm. Um, people can go back and listen to the to the full argument if they care to, but uh, kind of the crux of the argument was uh, a challenge, and that is a challenge to apologists to explain one action that God couldn't perform that he would he would have to abstain from this action to preserve his moral character. Mm-hmm. We pointed out like some of the obvious ones like murder, genocide, uh, genocide, uh, jealousy. All these horrible things, they're clearly okay for God to be able to do this, deceiving people. Um, These are okay for God. So if we're going to be able to articulate what it means for God to be righteous, could we say one thing that God couldn't do because it would be immoral? Uh, So she posed this to Lee Strobel. Mm -hmm. Basically, it looks like Lee Strobel tried to dodge it. He he, uh, answered it with kind of a might-makes-right type of argument, according to her. She writes, he said basically that if God performed the actions, they wouldn't be bad. So, you know, obviously uh, God, whatever he does just by definition is good. But which we pointed out, that makes God amoral. It doesn't make him moral uh, or immoral. It means that he you know, he doesn't actually live up to any kind of moral standard. And then it can't be used as a compass for human morality. Right. So I, I'm glad she brought that up. It looks like uh, Strobel didn't know how to handle it. Um, and it does touch on this question. Again, the point of that is the intelligibility of God's attributes. Mm-hmm. We can talk about proofs for God. We can talk about what evidence is there for or against God. But what about the concept of God altogether? Is it meaningful? Does it make sense? Or does it lead to all sorts of contradictions Mm. like we saw with uh, a loving God in hell in the Craig Bradley debate? Does it lead to all sorts of unintelligible utterances, concepts that we can't put any sort of content like we see with uh, God's morality? And so we're going to talk about God. Who is he? What are his attributes? And do they make sense for this week's counter-apologetics? Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for counter-apologetics. All right, starting off real quick, uh, I want to kind of define terms, I guess, or, or lay out some just basic distinctions here. Good idea. Yes, yes, we've learned in the past uh, what happens when you don't do that. But when we're talking about God and we're talking about his, his attributes, his character, what would it take for them to be rational, for them to be intelligible? Um, there's some basic criteria here, and I want to make a basic distinction. Um, one is that we should expect his attributes to be internally consistent, right? Mm-hmm. We want to make sure that 
any characteristic God has. So, for example, God's omnipotence. His, he can do anything. Yes. A property like that could be internally contradictory if it's going to lead to absurdities. For example, if God can create a square circle, mm-hmm. that would be an example of an attribute of his that could lead to some sort of contradiction. So most apologists are going to concede, for example, that any definition of omnipotence, all an all-powerful being, if it's going to be coherent, we have to limit those things to what is logically possible. So mm-hmm. that's the first thing to get across. Is the attribute internally consistent? Is it consistent with itself? Uh, another point, though, is if, if an attribute is internally consistent, then it shouldn't contradict any other attribute of God either, right? So uh, arguments from evil, we know that. Most arguments from evil try to show that, you know, attributes like omniscience, omnipotence, and omnibenevolence cannot all coexist. So most of the arguments from evil try to show that some of his, some of his qualities will contradict with other qualities. Right. So if we see either of those two cases, the attribute is internally inconsistent, and so it's incoherent. Right. We even talked about that last week with being all-loving and just. But I also want to add this idea of an attribute being intelligible, okay? Not, not just looking at contradictions between the different attributes of God, but when we actually name an attribute like all-powerful, all-loving, mm-hmm. um, is there any intellectual content to that? Does it actually make reference to something? Uh, is it really understandable? For example, we can, have, we can have situations where we have the right grammar, the right syntax, but our statements are completely meaningless. So a great example of this is that poem from uh, Lewis Carroll, Jabberwocky. Here's a selection from the Jabberwocky. "'Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble and wabe. All mimsy were the boragroves, and the mome wraths outgrabe." Right. What's a tove? What? And how does one slivy? Uh, <laughs> Luke has volunteered Luke to has be a tove. Luke has volunteered an answer. Well, the etymology of the tove dates back to the – I have no idea. Right. If we can't say what a tove is, then we don't know what makes it slivy either. I right. mean, what, 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 what does it mean to do that? These have words. They sound like they make sense. But if they don't actually have any sort of content to it, um, then they're completely meaningless. That's, that's what we mean by unintelligible. Now, it could provoke associations. Right. It could provoke feelings, and that might explain why we, we perceive there being some sort of foggy meaning. But when you actually get down to the nitty-gritty and say, well, what does this refer to? Right. We don't, we don't know. Now, words that we use to describe God can be like that. They, they seem to make sense to us, right? Here's another example. Uh, George Smith in his book, Atheism, The Case Against God, brings this up. He says, uh, for example— um, red. Red could be used as a color for an object, but sen- what sense would it make to say that the object's shape is red? Mm. So we can have words that are real words that we use, like all-powerful, but if we put them in a different context where we divorce them of, of the normal meaning and sense they make to us, they may sound like they contain meaning, but they're really actually unintelligible. Um, to say that the shape of something is red is really doesn't have any more intellectual content than to talk about slithy toves. 
Right. Neil deGrasse Tyson gave gave my favorite example. Um, I saw him in New York a couple of years back when he said that um, you know, talking about responding to theist questions and he said, you can say at what temperature does the numeral seven melt, but that doesn't make it a real question. Right. You know? Just because it sounds like a question and your voice goes up at the end, it doesn't make it an actual question. So moving to God, let's look at some basic uh, attributes, kind of God's metaphysical nature, his nature as a being. Um, we're told that God is supernatural. God mm-hmm. is incorporeal. He, he exists without a body. God is infinite. He's immutable, which means he doesn't change. These are all terms that people try to use to explain God's metaphysical nature. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, do those actually make any sense? Do those terms have real content? Or is this just the same thing as talking about a slithy tove? Let's start with supernatural. Is that like more than natural? Some, some, like Superman? It's outside of what's natural. Yeah. So what does that mean? Does it mean it's outside of cause and effect? It's outside of space and time? Right. What is a uh, supernatural existence? Um, notice that that term doesn't actually tell us anything positive about whatever supernatural right. is. Just says it's that just, it's not natural. It's just telling us all these things that we, you know, it's it's contradicting those things we already know. We understand things as being in space, being in time, having cause and effect, having some sort of nature. And, and these are just saying, well, whatever God is, it's outside of all that. It's something that is not all those things you just mentioned. So it's beyond Robert Redford. God is incorporeal. All that means is God doesn't have a body, right? right. Well, what, what does it mean to be a being that exists without a body? Is there any sort of positive knowledge about what that means no to be No mass, no volume, no, no yeah. density. What is that? Because well, even say, air has those attributes. Yeah, you could say it's spirit, but does that make any sort of difference? Oh, God's substance is spirit. Well, what is spirit? That's Unless you word. can show what spirit means— to say spirit, does that have any difference than slithy tove? And how does it interact in the real world if it's purely supernatural? That is, at some point, whatever level, there has to be then an interaction between the supernatural realm of God and, you know, like when Jesus was resurrected. Specifically, how did he do it? Does the DNA go up again? Does the blood start right. to do it? You know, at some level, his godly finger appendage must enter the real world if he's to have a real world right. effect. When the Red Sea is parted, there has to be some force holding up the walls of the water. Yeah, I can so accept. explain how an immaterial substance can interact with a material substance. Right. I, I have no problem accepting that there are incorporeal things out there that in no way can react with the world. I mean, that's uh, on a logical level fine, incorporeal stuff exists, but there's no way that it could affect the corporeal world. I'm not even sure I, I would take well, I, that I, far. I'm, not, but, I'm but not saying that I... I I'm, not, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I'm, I'm just trying to think, you know, what, what could be a unembodied existence? Right. Or even that idea that I just said, an immaterial substance. It, that almost sounds to me like a contradiction in of itself. Absolutely. An immaterial substance. Again, the shape of it is red, it has it's red in shape. Mm-hmm. I mean, w- w- substance. The way we understand that word, substance, is something that's tangible. You can touch. You can hold it. It has a. It's quantifiable. Right. What does it mean to be, have an immaterial substance? So these are all ways that we're trying to explain God's metaphysical nature. But notice they don't say anything positive about God. All they do is just explain God in the negative. This is what God isn't. 
right, is not a physical form. This is sometimes called in theology uh, explaining God uh, via negativa, uh, mm-hmm. looking at the negative, trying to explain what something is by saying what it's not. You find this in, in Hinduism, certain concepts of right. Brahma. Um, and, and there, at least, I can kind of understand it. The idea of Brahma is that Brahma transcends all sorts of categories, right? Any sort of human understanding, if you can say this is Brahma, that's not Brahma. Yeah, it's not. Um, because their basic – their idea is that God is infinite, right? And so any sort of attribute you were to give to Brahma would limit him. Right. Now, that makes sense to me um, because – really. That's impressive because – It makes sense to me why they would make that move. Oh, sure. Because it is true that an infinite being, as soon as you ascribe mm-hmm. some sort of attribute, you know, you're going to put limitations on it. If somebody is tall, then they cannot be short in the same time and the same respect. If you're that's, infinite, you cannot yeah. also be finite. Yeah, that's and if you are omniscient. That's the basic yep. law of identity. A equals A. As soon as you put some sort of quality – you're saying, well, now that being cannot be that quality and possess its exact negation. Well, we also talked about this when we mentioned evolutionary models of religion where, like as Boyer argues, there are a lot of conceivable God concepts, but the most popular ones are strategic concepts, that when God has mm, information sure. that we would want to know or acts in such a way that we could understand. Uh, and so, you know, th- th- like you said, there's a, a strategic element in, in the Eastern concept of sticking with a not-God things, but in reality, people treat God as if it was an intelligible concept. Yeah, and that's true. How could you interact with something that's not intelligible? And that's true in Hinduism, too. So they they have Brahma without qualities, but they say to be able to understand Brahma with, since we're limited human beings, we have to introduce Brahma with qualities, Brahma with these properties. And, And at least in the monotheistic traditions, you know, they do the exact same thing. George Smith has a very good critique of this. If you're describing everything in the negative, that being would not be distinguishable from non-existence at all. Right, Um, right. Reading from George Smith, he says, God is not matter, neither is non-existence. God does not have limitations, neither does non-existence. God is not visible, neither is non-existence. God does not change, so on and so on. And so down the list of negative predicates. If the theist wishes to distinguish his belief in God from the belief in nothing at all, he must give some sort of positive substance to the concept of God. And so then we get to those qualities uh, that I like I like how Smith puts it. He calls them the, quote, unlimited attributes. Mm-hmm. So these attributes to God that supposedly, you know, aren't going to have any sort of lim- limitations – um, some of the ones we're familiar with, like omniscience, omnipotence, and, and, and so on. But the question is, do these actually fare any better? Do these give us any sort of positive information as to the nature of God? Or are they riddled with contradictions? Another atheist writer, Michael Martin, in his book, Atheism, A Philosophical Justification, talks about how omniscience can't possibly be consistent with this idea of God being disembodied. There's some types of knowledge that you would have to possess a body to be able to have that kind of knowledge. Such as carnal knowledge. Well, yeah, carnal knowledge is one of those uh, that that he brings up. But uh, can God know what it feels like to do a handstand? Well, how about just to be hungry? Or to be hungry, yeah. Or to to be lonely or 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 psychological states. Right. 
How could he possibly mm. do that if that, that implies having a bodily existence? Can God know fear, frustration, despair? All of these things would only happen if God was limited in power. So there's a contradiction between God's omniscience and his all-powerful nature. You know, could he really know these, know by acquaintance, know these things like fear, frustration, and despair? Well, and Jesus says, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did he not have, was that just the human part of Jesus? Or was that his God nature saying that? Mm. Well, there, there's another thing. Can God suspend or somehow violate aspects of his own identity? So that right there. The incarnation is the idea that, well, uh, Jesus, you know, Jesus becomes embodied in the flesh. Jesus makes certain comments like, I don't know the hour or the day or yeah. the day or 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 mark when he when uh, surprised he said that it was he was surprised of the people's lack of faith or that he was unable to perform miracles in mark he's a much more human quality without having divine qualities that we ascribe to it but how is that possible because if god is all knowing and all powerful if he uses that power to become not omniscient then he's violating his own character he's if dem- he's, he's not omniscient down. anymore he's not god wow He's violating one of his own properties. So can those really be consistent? What, what about his perfect goodness? Can God know lust, envy, hate, greed? Can he know all these, these feelings that, that are sinful? Can he know these things by acquaintance? If he's all good. If he was can, in yeah. the last temptation of Christ, he knows lust because that's what he was thinking about on the cross. That's right. That Mary Magdalene. Oh, man. Now I can't even do anything. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, Paul Schrader. Grand Rapids' own Paul Schrader, who penned uh, Last Temptation of Christ. What? No, that the, was a the Greek movie. author. No, the... Yeah, but the, the, the script for the movie. Oh, the script. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. He adapted the, the right, book. Right, right, right. He yeah. did cat people, too. Anyway. You guys know the standard objection to omnipotence. What's the Homer Simpson argument? Could God create a burrito so hot that even he could not eat it? No, That's heavy. Right. No, hot. It was when he was stoned. <laughs> Wait, I have the question here. Ooh, that's a humdinger of a question there. Uh, <laughs> gee, that's uh... <laughs> and, and that's that's often put as kind of a silly objection. But again, it's it's getting at that idea of an unlimited attribute. If you were to have total power, wouldn't it entail that you could you could use that power to do some things that would lead to a contradiction? So, could God commit suicide? Ooh, no, the world would uh-huh. blink out of existence. Could he kill himself? Nietzsche was right. God is dead. If he's God, the prime suspect. If God could kill himself, then it would contradict his eternal nature, right? Because right. God is supposed to be immutable, unchangeable, eternal. Um, so if if he could kill himself, then that's destroying it. Now, but, Jeremy, people object to that by saying okay. it's a logical inconsistency. Yeah, I was going to say. Not a God property, a weakness of God, but just that we're asking logical square circle type things. That's yeah. that's that's a yes. That is a common objection, and and it's to some degree that that does sound like it's fair. Wouldn't that be a, a logical contradiction? Michael Martin has a very interesting thing to say about this. Martin says, "What happens if we limit our definition of omnipotence to just what is logically possible?" Uh, you you could put it like this: Our definition of omnipotence would be a being that had all power that is logically possible for that type of being to have. That would be a more fair sure. uh, definition, right? Seems mm-hmm. circular, though. 
But well, yeah. <laughs> and that's what he points out is just about anything can fit that definition. Let me... it, if somebody points out one that wouldn't, you just say, well, that's not that type of right. being. Aren't, aren't I'm omnipotent by that definition? Like you could say or, orcs are beings that aren't smart. And if you say, well, there's a smart one, well, he's not an orc. Martin brings up his little thought of experiment of the being that we will call McNose. Martin in, in, uh, in his book says, uh, consider a being called McNose. His knowledge is of the highest degree, but McNose only knows how to scratch his nose and only has direct experience of all aspects of his nose itching and being scratched. Let us further suppose that McNose beliefs are about his nose itching and being scratched, and these beliefs constitute knowledge. Absurdly, McNose is omniscient based on this definition. Right. So if we're going to say that, we're going to limit God to what is just logically possible for a being of his type to have. That's really not all that impressive. And it, it also ends us up in this very strange place where it, it would also be true that there are some things that an omniscient and omnipotent being would not know and would not have the power to do that us, us humans who are not omniscient, who are not omnipotent, that we could do. Right. So, for example, if it's possible for us to commit suicide, then uh, we have this power that an omniscient being doesn't. If it's possible for us to have carnal knowledge, to know by acquaintance things like uh, lust, envy, greed, hatred, all these things, then we can know something as fallible, limited human beings that an omniscient being couldn't experience. And so... We're bigger than Jesus. In other words, it tears apart these ideas, these these notions, these unlimited attributes fall apart. When you start to scratch the surface, they just become incoherent. I mean, I, I, I think our listeners will probably be fair to point out that much of this conversation almost seems unintelligible. Mm-hmm. And part of that is, is due to uh, it's early in the morning. <laughs> this stuff isn't easy to talk about. But part of it's due to the fact that Yes, these ideas, we are actually, we're talking about Lewis Carroll's poem right now. We might as well be analyzing all the meanings of Jabberwocky because these these attributes, they just collapse. Real quickly, I want to consider some basic objections. I found these in a book called Does God Exist? Uh, It was a debate between Kai Nielsen and J.P. Moreland. Kai Nielsen uses a similar type of argument to the one that we're using right now. Uh, Moreland tries to argue, well, couldn't you define God uh, ostensibly by religious experience? So if you're having some sort of spiritual experience, you can experience God's grace, love, and power, and therefore, you know, you could at least have some sort of knowledge or content to the figure of God through that experience. So this is what God feels like? Yes. I'm I'm feeling feeling God's grace, so now I know, yeah. Like during an orgasm? Hmm. It's about the closest I ever plan on getting. Or high on crack. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm I'm not on board with that. Orgasm sounds safer. Yeah. Well, I guess it depends. <laughs> it's the same reward mechanism. Yeah, it depends on uh, the source of the uh, uh, orgasm. Good point. But I, I just don't know how you could take that seriously because uh, you would you would have to have prior knowledge of God, right, to to know that that's what's provoking that this those is what is God. experiences. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how you could. And Another you're... one that I found even more lame is he says uh, basically 
Um, you can know Jesus through a chain of reference, he says. Um, and, and does, this does is, he, are they on his resume? This is basically what he's arguing. If I were to say, hey, have you met Doug? And you're like, who's Doug? And I were to grab Doug and point to him and say, that's Doug? Yeah. In the same way that that would give you knowledge of Doug, right. since Jesus existed, we could basically take Jesus and, and there's who's Doug? God, yeah. grab Jesus, pull him over and say, this guy. This dude right here, that's God. And and he well, says the language only that, down a chain two thousand yeah, years. And that, he says then this guy knows yeah, that guy who quoting Moreland, he says, then the reference is fixed in Jesus and the and content is given to this term God. <laughs> well that's what evangelicals the language that they use all the time of yeah, know, of knowing Jesus. True. It's they say it's not an intellectual thing, you just have to know Christ and that yeah. kind of thing. That's the kind of language they use all the time. But but by the same logic I can introduce you to Zeus. Yeah. You know? I just I I find that so ridiculous. I I don't even really want to respond to it. It's kind of adorable. You're not looking and through the eyes of faith. Not to be guys. condescending, yeah. but that's really kind of just adorable. And then the the last one um, that was very condescending. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I know. think you know sometimes we been, try to be really fair. Uh, yeah. But I think sometimes I've been you condescended just look to at a lot in is. the last week. So I'm I'm laughing. Sure you did. I apologize. Dave. Sure you did. Um, and then the last uh, thing that J.P. Moreland tries, which I think this is way more similar, you're going to find people making this argument, is that we know about the properties of God through analogy. Uh, we know yes. them, he says, through analogy mm-hmm. with myself. I, repl- I reflect upon my own faculties and form a conception of God as a being who has intellect, will, and emotion. So since we know what it's like for us to be good right. or to be a being or to have to knowledge, think, to, yeah. therefore God is something like that in a degree that's proportionate to his metaphysical nature, whatever that means. So can frogs do the same thing? Right. And well, the other thing is that, that thinking doesn't make it so. So I can imagine someone who's bigger and more powerful than me. I can imagine Superman, but that doesn't mean that Superman exists. Well, that's true. Well, you know, but we're, I mean, I know the attributes of Superman. Well, they the question that. is whether it's knowable or right, not, right. not Not at this point whether or not it's, it's proven or right. supported. That's often used, isn't it, uh, that, or an argument similar to that is often used by people when you bring up things like, well, why would God do that is to say, you know, an ant couldn't imagine what a, a human's intention is to do something. And so in that yeah, way, yeah, as sure. a metaphor, we can't imagine what God's intention is, but that doesn't mean that there isn't so an the metaphor yeah. doesn't work. Really? Well, we, we talked about mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago about arguments from analogy, and you know that analogies fail if uh, if the objects are dissimilar in ways that are you know too great yes. to accommodate you know whatever the property in question is. And uh, um, George Smith in his book Atheism: Case Against God does a really good job of trying to show you know how removed some of these properties are from what we ordinarily understand. Mm -hmm. So, uh, for example, to say that God is omnipotent, that he has power. Well, we know what it's like to have power over something, right? Some of us do. Uh, Not as a professor, really. No. (laughs) Not as an untenured professor. Yeah. But when we actually take this to the context of God, Smith argues, it doesn't make any sense. He he says a real quick kind of paraphrase of what he's saying. You know, God can't be said to employ means to an end. That's you know, employing means mm-hmm. is a is a consequence of limited power. 
Uh, God can't be said to act because actions are only necessary for someone who needs to employ some means to an end. He Can he have a purpose? A purpose implies unfulfilled desires, but God is supposed to be perfect, complete, and unchanging. Any attempt, Smith says, to make God into these types of things that we usually associate with agency, willful action— any attempt to make God into this is anthropomorphizing God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can understand those things in a human context, but when you put it in a supernatural, transcendent realm, these things don't make any sort of sense. You know, same thing with knowledge. We know knowledge as something that's conceptual. Right. We learn from experience. We learn this in the context of space and time. We ent- integrate these ideas into our, you know, our mental whole of the universe. Uh, we need to acquire that knowledge. We need to verify those knowledge. All of those things can't be true of God. Whatever God's knowledge is, his omniscient knowledge, it's something completely removed from the type of knowledge that we experience. And so do these properties, these traits of God, do they really make any sense in the first place? Well, could you say that in a lot of the, in the Old Testament versions of God getting angry, God getting jealous, would actually be incompatible with the idea of other properties of God? If you're, oh, the uh, fact that he's changeless? If you're, um, yeah, if you're omniscient, omnipotent, changeless being, could you possibly be said to get angry or jealous? Yeah. Right, right, or change your mind how or all these things. can you throw a hissy or, fit about something that yeah, you know how, is coming? How, like, yeah, what were some of the things that God would get angry about, like when humans would disobey him or be wicked? How could he not... Could he not foresee that that would be happening? And, and well, that's right. just There's the no writers doubt. anthropomorphizing God, and of course, the the real truth of the story is is too great for us to understand. Blah 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 blah. And you know that that is where this always terminates. Mm-hmm. It always terminates in the idea. Well, okay, say what you will, play your little logic games, try to capture him by language, but no human being could possibly understand God. He does transcend our knowledge. But but you know, to me. If you're going to make the transcendence argument, if you're going to bail there and and rest your ideas of God in this transcendent realm, be consistent. If God is unknowable, then shut your mouth and say God is unknowable. Don't say that you can know him when you win the lottery but not know him when he wipes out a And why bother worshiping and dedicating your life to something that's completely unknowable? That's right. So unknowable God exists? You can't can't retreat into transcendence when you're called out on the floor and then make a non-transcendent, you know, a a very human-like deity the rest of the time. Yep. If, If you can't know God, then... Just do the right thing and call yourself an agnostic. Be consistent. Well, so that's where we will leave it this week with an unintelligible God and a hopefully intelligible podcast. Um, <laughs> I guess we'll wait. We'll wait for the reviews on this one. Um, it didn't really go the way I planned it. it. When Jeremy edits it, it makes us it makes it more intelligible. So he's like a redactor of the Bible. He uh, he carves out passages that are that make right. sense and paste them. Oh, in there's going to be a whole lot of carving on this one. Yeah, I I think we've got some some meat out there. I think there's stuff that people can can hold on to. Well, even if we even if we bungled our presentation of it, the listeners will be the judge of that. But mm-hmm. um, what I would encourage you to do is is go to other people who do a better job. Uh, as as was mentioned in the podcast, George H. Smith, Atheism, The Case Against God. Great book. Michael Martin, Atheism, A Philosophical Justification. 
You can find all sorts of material online on the secular web that discusses these issues further. That debate with Kai Nielsen and J.P. Moreland is another one to reference. We're kind of presenting these ideas here for some of you who may have not heard it, but we encourage you to go learn about this more elsewhere. But you don't have to take our word for it. Uh, So that's going to do it for us this week. Please come back next week for more fun and frivolity. And in the meantime, find us on Facebook. We now have both a uh, a group and a Facebook profile, Reasonable Doubts. Um, and send us your emails, questions, comments to doubtcast at gmail.com. Check we out have three Facebook entities now, don't we? We do. What? We have a fan we're, page. We're like a trinity on yes. Facebook. There's the group, there's the fan page, and there's the uh, the actual profile. I think it's ridiculous. I think we need to trim it down. Somehow. We're also on Twitter too. Um, oh, I don't even know what I some of these things are. Remember to update that. Just trying right. to get the word out. Spread the word. Thanks for listening. Till next week. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes, or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. <laughs>